Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. The relationships that my father and my mom had would define how well we did. And so there was this consistent focus on who we're connected to, how strong is the relationship. This predates anything I ever did by, you know, 30 years. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Human connection doesn't cost a lot of money. What'll drive them to connect doesn't need to cost a lot of money. And in fact, if you look at the most tight-knit communities, they're often the poorest because they need to rely on one another. We expect that our brain is this one thing that always acts consistent. It's a bunch of systems that are all fighting each other for dominance and most of what we're actually doing is other than conscious and emotional. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today on the show is John Levy. John is the creator of the Influencers Dinner. What is an Influencers Dinner? So it's a secret dining experience that started in Manhattan in around 2009 by John Levy. Basically, the idea he came up with was, let's take 12 thought leaders, tastemakers, influencers from disparate industries and have them all attend one dinner. And during the course of the experience, they're not allowed to discuss their professional career or share their last name. So as one would imagine, this would make a very interesting dinner because we all hide behind our identities. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a CPA, I'm a baseball star, you get the idea. So what he did was he pulled all of that back and said, look, here's the groceries. You guys are gonna cook a meal together. You don't know what each other's last name is. So if there's a Rockefeller, which there has been in the bunch, you're not gonna know about it. This has turned into one of the most fascinating social experiments on the planet because it has happens where you have had a dinner with an astronaut or you've had a dinner with uh, a Gallup, you know, somebody from the Gallup family. So these dinners have been legendary. They're not so easy to get into. But what's come out of it is people who have completely different views on a topic, having dinner together and then later finding out, oh my God, you were a Republican. Oh my God, you were a Democrat. We had dinner together. And uh, it's just a 
fascinating social experiment. So uh, you're going to love this conversation. It was great. We talked all about uh, John growing up and what it was like for him and how his environment uh, growing up as a kid in, uh, in Manhattan influenced the kind of work that he's doing today. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with John Levy. John, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I can already tell this is going to be really fun. It's going to be great. I'm super excited to talk to you today. And, you know, I just for a little context, because my question will make sense when I give you this context. I grew up in Queens and um, my dad was, you know, blue collar truck driver, went to the bar at three o'clock, smoked cigarettes all day, like that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I had a rich friend who uh, had a house in the Hamptons. And so I'd go to the Hamptons and I'd meet these, I'm 55 now, and I'd meet these you know, chicks at 16 that lived in Manhattan. And it was always this, you know, like this world that like when I got to Manhattan and I was a bridge and tunnel kid, you know, when I, when I crossed that thing and I went into the city, my penis immediately shrunk, you know, I <laughs> lost it all and doing research on you. And, and I think it's going to be interesting to hear your perspective on this, but doing research on you, I think with that little preamble, I think a good place to start is you growing up in Manhattan in the seventies, right? You are, uh, 80s, uh, yeah. 80s. Okay. So your, your parents, uh, your dad was a, a sculptor and, and a painter and your mom was a composer and she was a conductor. Let's just start off with that as a, as a framework. In what ways do you think that what they did sort of influenced you? Oh, so interesting. I think that part of what they did definitely had an impact because my father was essentially in direct sales, right? So he, for him, his relationships defined his success 100%. He was either able to connect with the right clients who could buy something, or we'd be really stressed out about the bills. Mm -hmm. And um, I think an additional kind of interesting point is that my father grew up in, he was born in 1940 in pre Israel, Palestine. So before Tel Aviv even existed, grew up one of, I think it was 12 kids in total, super poor. And most of the population that he knew was post-Holocaust. So like people who had come in and survived the war. And so there mm -hmm. was this always like concern of famine at any point, right? There is probably never enough resources. And there was always kind of like this background of anxiety that like I have two creative parents and there might not be enough at some point. We have to be really careful. As a byproduct of that, the thing we were always really rich with was relationships. Because the relationships that my father and my mom had would define how well we did. And so there was this consistent focus on who we're connected to, how strong is the relationship. And they would focus actually on doing these gatherings in our home with musicians and creatives and business leaders. This predates anything I ever did by, you know, 30 years. Uh, it's pretty amazing. So with that sort of, this is interesting because I didn't, I didn't get that from the research. I sort of got that you were, and maybe I'm wrong, but I got that you were 
you know, a super wealthy sort of like Upper East Side privileged, oh, you know, kid. Was, yeah, that, sort, was that sort of, of what it was? Not really. I mean, don't get me wrong. By the time I was a teenager, my father had had a bunch more success and had really made a name for himself. So I, I ended up in private schools, but private schools back in the 80s didn't cost anywhere near as much as what they cost today. And he was always kind of like a, he would hustle. So he would figure out ways to like trade his art for part of the tuition and things like that. So it was, I was generally in high school, I went to high school with like, you know, there were really wealthy families there. I went, I think with Paris Hilton and Johnson Johnson kids and things like that. But we were probably the least wealthy family in, in school, aside from maybe a handful of scholarship kids. And that's not like, listen, I never went hungry a day in my life, right? I never, I, there were times when we were worried about making tuition for school, but it was, it, I lived by any, like almost any global standard, a, a privileged lifestyle. Right. Uh, yeah, that part I get. But the interesting part about what you're talking about now, this is really interesting because I'm, I'm in a similar situation. We moved to I'm in a similar situation now as a parent, <laughs> as your dad was as a parent back then, now that I'm living in Italy. So, for example, uh, my I have a seven year old daughter and she goes to the International School of Florence and, you know, I went there the other day um, for a cocktail party and it was a who's who. I'm looking at celebrities. I'm looking at billionaires. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at famous designer brands, kids. And I'm the schmuck from Queens that, you know, barely scraped together what I need to scrape together to, to get the kid into school. So, I, so it's interesting because one would look in from the outside and go, oh, look at you. You're in Florence with a fancy private school for your kid. Yeah. But yet I just sort of made the, the, the cut, which, which you did too. But what I find interesting is that your parents were in the arts and mm -hmm. yet they were sort of my words, entrepreneurial in a way to keep oh, you, sure. you know, to keep, to keep you where they wanted you. And the reason why I'm, I'm spending as much time on this is because look, like how you grew up informs your life. There's just the way it is. That was, you know, that was your environment. Your dad uh, took you as a kid to the homelands of Israel. And uh, he, uh, he, he wanted to teach you the value of a buck and the value of hard work. So he had you, he had you, you know, carrying uh, buckets of cement. Yeah, sand and cement and mix and, yeah. Oh, for and sure. For, yeah, for his family house. Like what, what do you think he was, other than the obvious, you know, what do you think he was trying to teach you looking back on it now as an adult? I think that uh, one was, it was one of the ways that he just found for us to spend quality time together. Like he, the idea of like, especially in the early days, sending me to summer camp or something wasn't like, it wasn't something we really did. And so I would kind of follow him around as he went through his business dealings and assist him. And in New York, assisting him maybe meant stretching canvases and, and like putting the frames on paintings and things like that. And in Israel, when we were fixing our houses, uh, it was about like, Hey, you're going to do some work and I'll pay you. And it's going to be uncomfortable to get used to it. It was, you and, know, there's and, this and idea got, of anti-fragility. You got a whopping, you got a whopping three bucks an hour, right? 
something like if I were lucky, something yeah. like it was, uh, have you, have you ever heard of this concept of anti-fragility? No. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It, the, the, the book, there's a book anti-fragile. Yeah. Yes. It's, uh, essentially that like, if I drop a glass, it'll break. It's fragile. Right. There's certain things that are the exact opposite that when you put pressure on them actually get stronger, assuming muscle. it's like, yeah, exactly. Like building muscle or our social skills, right? We go out, we make some friends, we have some positive feedback, and then like we mess up occasionally and we learn how to behave or how not to behave. And I think, you know, he grew up in, a, when he grew up in Israel, there were like no paved roads and there was, you know, like the idea of a street light <laughs> powered by electricity was like a novel thing. So he, I think, really wanted me to, to value how good we have it, have it. And frankly, even though like, you know, it was feast or famine at times, really, I had it great by any standard. I and mean, especially considering he grew up in the middle of a war. At night, he was crossing the street. A cab hit a street lamp. The street lamp fell on his leg. And, and it was infected, but there were no doctors to take care of it. And so they sent him home. And after three days of like agony, they eventually brought him back to the hospital. And I'm going to describe something that's a little kind of scary and, and difficult to hear potentially. But they had, you know, middle of the independence war in Israel. They had no anesthetics, no surgeons. Everybody was at the front line. Two men held him down. And uh, somebody took scissors and removed a portion of his foot. And, uh, and so he had, you know, he's disabled on one foot. And uh, like he had it tough, you know, from the age of eight onward. That was what is. And but he was like, no, I got to keep going and really, you know, made something for himself. And I'll be honest, I think I've done some pretty amazing things in my life. I don't think anything compares to a disabled eight-year-old who's dyslexic growing up. They're achieving being able to support an entire family through art and coming to the U.S. as an immigrant, learning a language, uh, several languages, in fact, and really creating a, a pretty extraordinary life for him and his family. You know, you get it, you get it now as an adult, but as a kid, I'm sure you were just, you know, he was just dad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not only was he dad, this is so good. Uh, my dad, I'm mixed race. So my father's half Yemenite. Mm -hmm. uh, half, it looks like Turkish, I think, or maybe North African of some kind, like mm -hmm. uh, Moroccan or something. We're not really sure because nobody kept good records back then. And, uh, and so he doesn't look like everybody else's dad, right? He's like an Afro and he's got like paint covered overalls and all that kind of stuff. So to... Me, he was like the embarrassing guy who I didn't want my friends to see. And uh, would like, I'd hope he wouldn't pick me up from school because I'd get made fun of. Um, but like looking back on it, he was the coolest. Like everybody else was there. To me, it sounds like you're describing Lenny Kravitz. So, I yeah, mean, yeah, like, right. Like, <laughs> but even to like Zoe Kravitz, Lenny was probably an embarrassment, right? Of you course. Know? Of course. So, it's, of course. Uh, my dad's a rock star. My mom's amazing. But when you're eight years old, 10 years old, dad. it's like, mom, dad, you know. They're, they're so you went to, uh, you mentioned that you went to a prep school and then you wound up um, sort of going down that New York path. You went to NYU and then you got yeah. into marketing and, and you did that for a while. But marketing, you quickly realized was not your thing. What was it about that 
it doesn't have to be marketing, but what was it about that time in your life where you were like, I, I just don't want to do this. This is not, this is not for me. Like, what was that? Like, take me back to that moment. So there's a couple of things. One was, uh, I was working in, in sales for a while and, uh, you know, it was pretty brutal. I was frankly very good at it, but I didn't find it wildly engaging. There's some people who love the sale, like her totally. And, and uh, eventually I ended up at uh, Rodale, with, uh, which at the time owned Men's Health, Women's Health, all those like fitness magazines. And the, they had an in-house agency and my job was all the digital strategy. And, and companies would come to us and because of the magazines, we had a full-time team of library scientists who would do research for us and find relevant data about anything we asked. It was a, provided to all the magazines. And so clients would come and say, okay, we need help dealing with obesity or something like that with our clients. And so we would email the library scientists team. They would give us all the relevant research and I would pour through the stuff and fall in love with it. And from that research, I'd say, okay, well, based on what we're seeing in terms of human behavior, this is going to be the most effective strategy. And I found that I really had a knack for it, that most companies or agencies would say things like, oh, do you know it'd be really cool? Or, oh, isn't this fun? And I'd say, yeah, it's great if it's fun and cool, whatever. But what I care about is, does it work? Is that how people actually behave? Is that what will get them to you know, eat a healthier diet? to develop an actual habit. And uh, from that, I wanted to begin doing research and I wanted to make new discoveries. And so I ended up getting approached by a neuroscientist to begin to do research. And that's kind of how my path really changed. All right. But then there was a time that that path sort of took a different path. And yes. that, pans, that path then branched off into something that I believe you called the influencers dinner. Yes. Um, so what, I was, so yeah. this is before Rodale, actually, this is, um, I was 28 years old. I was, uh, totally underemployed. I was pretty heavily in debt from, uh, college, uh, yep. NYU's pretty expensive. And sure. my parents gave me a bit of money, but not nearly enough to cover, uh, the, exorbitant tuition. Uh, and I was that like kind of typical guy that would set his alarm at 6am and then beat himself up all day for not waking up to exercise. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was like looking for a better way to improve my life. And I ended up signing up for a, a program, like a personal development course called wisdom unlimited. And it happens over the course of a bunch of weekends. And at one of the weekends, the instructor said that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. And I said, if that's true, then maybe instead of setting that alarm, what I need to do is really go out there and make friends with the people I admire, the ones that are exercising every day so that it becomes a habit mm -hmm. or the ones that are have business success so that I can understand how to get myself out of debt. And, uh, but you know, there's so many like personal development gurus that tell you stuff that turns out to be complete and utter trash. And so I wanted to see what the research actually said about this. 
And it was an awesome study. These two guys, Christakis and Fowler, looked at about 32 years of data. And they were curious, does obesity spread from person to person, like a cold? Or is it a percentage of the population, like Alzheimer's or something like that? And what they found was absolutely startling. So if you have a obese friend, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance. And their friends have a 5% increased chance. And this kind of effect is also true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Literally, anything we care about passes from person to person. And so it became really clear that I need to do two things. One, connect with extraordinary people. And then the second is connect them to each other. Because if, if I know you, that's great. But if we have 10 friends in common, that's going to pull you closer into my life. And you'll have more of a positive impact on me. I'll have more of a positive impact on you. And you'll have a positive impact on all those other people and vice versa. That essentially is a community, right? When people are, when there's a tight network effect. And so I got really, really curious. What would actually create a community of the most extraordinary people in our culture? And that was the starting point for what eventually became the Influencers Dinner, which you mentioned. Okay. And what year was that? What year did it begin? About 2009-ish, 2008, 2009. I think planning started 2009-ish. By 2010, I was already running dinners. Okay. Um, Are the dinners still happening now? Yes. We just started up again. I've run four uh, since the beginning of the... uh, Since the... Like people were getting vaccinated and everything. Yeah. Uh, we, and so I've done 231 dinners so far in 10 cities. It, it, over, the la- over the last decade. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a bit more. Like, yeah. Oh, decade. Yeah. A bit more. All right. So you, you mentioned a, uh, a seminar that you went to where the guy mentioned the, uh, the quote. But I think my research showed that you also went to Landmark Forum. Yeah. yeah. Wisdom Unlimited is like... The, so people do the landmark forum, and then after the forum, they can do this program called Wisdom, which is where uh, the that that quote came from. Okay, got it. So, how has this changed for you over the last twelve years? In other words, take me back, you know, or or just sort of like think about that first dinner that you put together, and then think about the two hundred and thirty first dinner that you had. Yeah. What uh, were, yeah, I mean, you see where I'm going with this, right? Like if you, like I'm on, I don't know, this maybe is the 300th podcast I've done, something like that. Mm-hmm. If you heard my first one, you'd, if I heard Fringe, my first one, right? it, I, I couldn't even listen to it. Oh my God. Okay. So the first dinner, but so just so the, the listeners have some context, each dinner yeah. has a very particular design. Uh, they're all the same. Uh, it's usually about 12 people. They're invited. And they're told that they're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name and that they'll be cooking dinner together. When they sit down to eat, we play a game to guess what everybody else does. And then they find out they're with Nobel laureates, Olympians, editors-in-chief, celebrities, Grammy award winners, whatever you can imagine. It's somebody who's influential in their industry. 
And it's not dependent on like social media following or if you're an heir or an heiress, that kind of stuff doesn't really interest us. Uh, what we actually care about is that you use your influence for an impact of some kind. And when I first started, I didn't know anybody really, right? Like I had some pretty interesting friends and uh, that was great, but I didn't know like titans of industry. And so when I ran the first dinner, it was an experiment. I never knew if I was going to do another one after that. And I think we were about 10 people and it was in the summer and the air conditioner broke and we were sweaty and it was a mess and I didn't have the right equipment and my kitchen was super, super small. And it was really wonderful. And it was really wonderful for a few reasons. One is that in hindsight, we remember terrible things as wonderful often. <laughs> and uh, the second is that there's this weird quirk of human behavior called the IKEA effect, which is that when we invest effort into something like assembling our IKEA furniture, we care about it more. And so because I didn't know what I was doing, everybody was pitching in a ton. And these were people I was, you know, relatively friendly with. So it was just a great time and everybody had a ton of fun. But these weren't like the most impressive people you'd ever met. It's like a well-known hairstylist or a real estate developer in New York, but they're not doing like multi-billion dollar deals or something like that. Yep. I decided to keep doing it. And dinner after dinner, what would happen is that I would get suggestions of other impressive people. And then I discovered that it's really easy to find just about anybody's email address. You want to get in touch with a Nobel laureate? They usually became a Nobel laureate because they wrote a scientific paper. And if that's the case, then their email address is on it. And so we, I hired uh, some people, some virtual assistants to track down people's contact info. And you know, we looked for astronauts and all these, you know, anything you could imagine. And nowadays, it's this well-oiled machine, right? It, there's all the equipment is at each station. Anything they could ask for or want is there. Tables are perfectly set up ahead of time with all the equipment that anybody would need. The guest list is crazy. We just had the chairman of one of the largest companies in the entire world, probably like top 10 or 20, and a prime minister and the Pulitzer Prize winner of a very, very famous book. Like, And that's what the guests are like these days. It's just nothing I could have ever imagined. Is this one dinner a month or are these like hundreds of dinners going on across the country? So it's every dinner has to have me at it. And that's to ensure quality control. Okay. I didn't want like the franchise model where suddenly people give a, a main stage TED talk, super impressive. And then you go to like one of the TEDx's and there's like a yeah. quality fall. Some of the TEDx's are absolutely fantastic. It's just very hard to control quality at that scale. Mm -hmm. And we, we wanted to make sure that every dinner you'd want to have be friends with each person who attended. And that's a, a scale issue, right? It's just much harder to, to do it at a massive level. And we do them every month. I host usually three in New York, one in LA, one in San Francisco, and sometimes one in Seattle. And then I'll do one in Miami during Art Basel and you know in Park City during uh, Sundance Film Festival. And you know I'll, I'll sometimes follow the circuit of events because that's where you can often get people who are never available otherwise. 
This is fascinating. You and I, I'm not sure if you know what I do um, outside of podcasts, but you and I have very, very similar paths here. Um, and, uh, allow me uh, two and a half minutes to tell you Please. what I'm doing, because I think this will be interesting for you. So I have, uh, I do two or three events a year for entrepreneurs around the world. The Work Hard, Play Hard brand is essentially people that you know, they love what they do, but they do it to a fault. They do it all the time and they don't view it as work, but they're largely sacrificing other areas of their life. So I create these events where I bring them in. I've got another one uh, happening in Italy in two weeks. So I'll give you a, a quick highlight. Thursday night, we're going to meet in uh, Milan and we're going to have dinner at Roberto Cavalli's restaurant to kick it off because Milan's all about fashion. So we're going to start there. We're going to spend the day in Milan. I'll take them backstage at La Scala. Uh, we'll go to the Duomo. I've got some um, some secret restaurants I'm taking them to, et cetera. But then Friday morning, they wake up and I have 10 Ferraris that are waiting from them, for them outside their hotel. I've got a team from Modena that's coming down where they make Ferraris. And we're going to drive the Ferraris all together. We're going to stop in Parma, get ham, stop, stop in Parmesan Reggiano area and do a cheese tasting. And then I'm sure you know Massimo Batora. We're going to go into his private villa um, and we're going to do a four-hour tasting menu where he's going to teach us how he created the best dishes in the world. And then we're going to stop for balsamic vinegar tasting. And then we're going to head to Como and we're going to do a pizza and bubbles night in Como. And then the next morning I have boats waiting for them. We're going to go down Lake Como, stop at the James Bond Villa, go to Il Bellagio for lunch. And then we're going to go to the oldest seaplane school in the world. And we're going to land a seaplane together, uh, four planes on Lake Como. And at the end of, basically what I'm doing is like a four day protracted uh, experience with 20 people to try and create connection in a very similar way, which is one of the reasons why I was so fascinated to talk to you because you're doing it. Um, frankly, it, it, what you're doing in some ways to me is harder because you have compressed time. I have four days oh, yeah to make it better. You're like, it's go time for you. You got six or seven of these that you do. So the question I have around that is, you know, it's, it's draining for me. Sometimes people would assume that I'm extroverted. I'm not, I'm much more introverted. I'm situationally extroverted, but I'm a little bit more introverted. And at the end of these events, I'm exhausted more emotionally than physically Yeah, for you. How are you doing six of these a month, five, six, whatever, a month for 10, 12 years? Is it, does it ever get draining for you or oh, is it? Okay. So first of all, the early years I was doing it, I do one, then it was six months later and then six months later and then three months later. And then frankly, I had this terrible breakup and then to kind of get over it. I started doing them every two weeks so that I'd have like a social occasion and something to occupy my yep. myself. And then I hired a staff. I started having a little bit more income. You see, this entire project doesn't make any money. Mm. I pay for everything. Nobody gets charged anything. Like I always thought it would be kind of like, why am I going to charge, you know, the prime minister of whatever 200 bucks for a meal that's pretty crappy? Like the, the food isn't good. And because when you have 12 people who don't know how to cook, cooking a dinner, you know, it's going to be fine. It's just not going to be fantastic. And so I ended up 
having one of my dinner guests come and she's a famous journalist. And she said, I was expecting a phenomenal meal and decent company. I got the exact opposite. So, you know, the structure of it's very different. In fact, I pride myself on kind of how little we spend and how close and connected people are and the status of the people that come. More to demonstrate that if you're broke, okay, there's stuff that you can do. It's not human connection doesn't cost a lot of money. What'll drive them to connect doesn't need to cost a lot of money. And in fact, if you look at the most tightly knit communities, they're often the poorest because they need to rely on one another. I, I want to, there's something, there's a thought bubble that's popping in my head here. There's two ends of the spectrum for me. The first end of the spectrum is I just have this vision of everybody arriving. Nobody knows anybody. Some people are loud and boisterous. Some people are, don't want to say a word and there are people that are in between. And then, you know, I'm assuming there's wine or something. Eventually they get more comfortable. The conversation flows a little better. So the question for me then is on both ends of the scale, what do you do at the beginning to break the ice? Mm -hmm. And then sort of in maybe middle to the ends, we in America right now have such division. Democrats and Republicans and vaccinated and not vaccinated and Black Lives Matter, just all of it. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate the conversations where there's differing opinions in this sort of setting? Uh, I think that you don't. <laughs> Here's, like, I, I don't know why we would need to have that conversation. Uh, I mean, does it come up? Are there differences of opinions or is there just things that are just off? You, we don't, you, we don't discuss religion no, just, or politics. I don't tell people aside from their career, I, they can talk about anything they want. And we've had, you know, the founding, let's say members of the black lives matter movement yeah. beyond just the people who, who uh, actually are the founders of the organization black lives matter. I mean, there's a whole slew of civil rights leaders that are involved in, in kind of bringing things together the, and people who are on the ground in Ferguson, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's never been an issue. And Amazing. The, the reason is twofold. One is when you're connecting with people without titles, then you can actually create a different kind of relationship. One that's mm. based on mutual respect of a human being. Uh, rather than, oh, you work at this controversial company, oh, we can't be friends. Well, things are a lot more complex than that in life. There's not, yes, no, you know, yes, somebody's a good person, they're a bad person, whatever it is, right? And so one of my favorite quotes from a dinner was, we just found out what a man, uh, a, a male guest did professionally. And the woman next to him said, I couldn't like you more as a person and dislike what you do more. Wow. And it was one of these great moments where I was like, you see, you can actually have people connect and have a mutual respect, even if they fundamentally disagree on big things. And she was like some ultra like left wing personality. And he was the uh, editor or founder of the libertarian or something like that, which, you know, on from a political content standpoint, completely opposing, but they're laughing. They're talking. It didn't matter what he did after that point. They still like, 
chatted and enjoyed each other's company. And hopefully by them now being friends, then there's an opportunity for each of them to see the other one's perspective rather than just seeing an enemy. Yeah. I mean, forgive the pun here, but I feel like you've inoculated yourself from this, uh, this issue because as I'm, as I'm listening to you and I'm sort of like going through this in my head, if I were at that dinner and I did not tell anybody what it was that I did, and it's the first guy question. I mean, every dude asks another dude, what do you do? Like, it's just, it is the absolute first thing that guys ask each other. So here's an interesting uh, question for you. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I think it's true in very specific worlds. And so uh, I'll give you an example. If you are, let's say, more well-to-do or have a, a career that you've spent years cultivating, yeah. then what you do is a representation of identity. So mm. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a professional public speaker, podcaster, right? I run these crazy cool trips that are the envy of the world. That's a matter of identity. And we are in such a hustle culture right now that without that, a lot of people don't know who they are. If you are potentially more working class, like you do construction, you do, I don't even know, you work at a plant assembling cars. I mean, awesome work, but just not something that you define your identity by. Then it might be the sports team that you're a part of your political party, your church that really define your identity. And so in those social circles, and I, I'll be honest, it's, I don't, <laughs> because of what I do, it's the people often don't even want to tell me their career because it's like a kind of joke around the dinners. So I just don't know because I, I don't get exposure to every walk of life, right? It's, uh, I get exposure to a lot of industries but I have no idea what the conversations are like in, in, if you're on the Rust Belt, for example. Oh, so your world is a world of people who, number one, they're not allowed to talk about it. And, and number two, perhaps they don't quite self-identify as much with what they do and who they are. No, no, in, in my world, mostly they do. Because of Mostly the they do. Yeah. Because the people who I invite to the dinners, their status is so tied into the, oh, I'm a research scientist. I'm a NASA astronaut. That, so in that world, it's more natural for people to say, so what do you do? In other social circles, it might be more natural to say, what teams do you follow? Got it. Right? Because Got that's it. their marker of identity, not the fact that they work construction three months of the year and then you know, five months of the year, they're on a shipping boat and whatever it is. I once, I went to a Tony Robbins event once and he said something um, that I'm going to, I'm going to just kill right now, but it was something like, there is nothing stronger in the human condition than our need to remain consistent with our identity. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that sounds, uh, we will contort a lot of information to justify our self-identity. In fact, uh, there's this funny thing that a researcher by the name of Dan Ariely, I'm not sure if you posted him at some no. point. No. Um, he wrote these books like Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrational, like how, mm -hmm. how ridiculous human beings are. And he found that uh, each of us has something called a fudge factor, which is there's the truth and there's a lie. 
And there's this little wedge in between, right? This little bar. And in that bar, you can still feel, call yourself honest, even if you do something that's technically dishonest, right? So it's, but he also found something really funny, which is if you can trigger people being creative beforehand, the fudge factor gets bigger because we get, we come up with better justifications on why we're still good people. So, right. Yes. We are really good at like justifying why I'm allowed to do something, right? Oh, because somebody else did, because it doesn't hurt anybody, because whatever. And the key, I think, is that human beings don't really make much sense. <laughs> We're like a, we expect that our brain is this one thing that always acts consistent. It's a bunch of systems that are all fighting each other for dominance. And most of what we're actually doing is other than conscious and emotional. And then we justify it with terrible logic. Like my favorite example is I am never more creative than after a long day when I find a candy bar on my counter (laughs) and I want to justify eating it because there's no way I'm not eating it. The only (laughs) thing that's a variable is like, how creative am I going to be in the justification of why I deserve it? You read Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, right? Yes. All right. So you know that he talks about thin slicing, right? Like you, you know, you see something, and in two seconds, you know, somebody can tell if the, a painting is a is a legit. Yeah, or not. I think they talk about like some statues in a closet and like some. There guy. you go. Right, right, right. Okay. So having under your belt mm-hmm. a zillion freaking people over twelve years. Yes. What's your blink when you're not at one of your things, or maybe even when you are at one of your things? Hmm. And you know, let's say, let's say you come over to my place and we have some dinner, and I got a, I got a group of ten people, and you're hanging out. Can you look? And I'm not asking you to do it. I'm just asking you, yeah. could you do it? If you looked at somebody, can you go? He's probably an astronaut. <laughs> do oh, you, no. do you no, have the that ability? <laughs> You don't. Here's what I can tell you. Consistently. Consistently, human beings are awful at these things. Like, if I looked at you, I, you know, you're muscular, you're fit, like, right? What would it, what would I like assume? Oh, he's like a former athlete that, you know, whatever. Never played sports. I never played sports. But but that's the point, is that you (laughs) just can't predict human behavior. I talk about this in my book, how, uh, the guy who created Criminal Minds, when yeah, he was the TV show. That, that, I'm sorry? The TV show? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when he was doing the research, he essentially found that no serial killer has ever been caught using behavioral science. Like, they, they are caught because they like, you know, they have a parking fine and somebody goes yeah, to They ran a red light, yeah. Now, they, they've been able to do a good job, like, reducing the number of potential candidates. So, like... We know that women tend not to be serial killers and it's a lot of white dudes and like they've done a you know really solid job kind of like narrowing the field. But it's still, you know, and that's down from 360 million to like, okay, there are 50,000, 100,000, 200,000 people it could be. And that's really a pretty amazing thing to narrow things down that much. But it's just not like, it, we're just not effective at these things. And there's this, Fantastic study that was done where they gave uh, solved crimes 
to a bunch of detectives, police officers, and chemistry students. And they okay. just gave them the facts of the cases, and they had to extrapolate who the person was that did it. And the chemistry students did outdid the police officers and the detectives. And it's just because they were better at basic logical thinking as scientists. And that doesn't mean that police are incompetent or something. Like It means that this is a really, really difficult job. And sometimes more exposure to things actually makes us less capable of, of doing it. A few years back, there was a police officer, I believe, that said, like, being a police officer has made him racist. And that's because there's so ende much endemic racism in the system that then his immediate response became, oh, it's probably a person of color who committed. And that's not a great starting point for actually solving a crime. You want to solve a crime by looking at the data and seeing where the facts lead, not having a pre-existing notion and shoving everything. That yeah, fits absolutely. Into if you threw me in jail, I'd probably come out as a criminal. Like, I, I get it. Your oh, environment sure. dictates it. Okay, so uh, as we sort of move towards the end of the interview here, I want to move a little bit into the uh, the, the the personal side mm -hmm. of John. So I'm going to ask you some weird questions. Just kind of uh, roll on. with it. All right. So the first one, I'll start off with some easy ones. First one is uh, in 2012, you traveled to the world's best celebrations. You ran with the Bulls yep. in Pamploma. You did Burning Man. What do you think collectively you got from all of those experiences around the world? Like if you had to encapsulate it, what did you learn? That a, an event in itself uh, gives the potential of incredible bonding. So if we're running of the bulls together, we might not speak. We might not know each other. We might literally be from different cultures that can't communicate. But because we go through the same experience together, I can give you a head nod and you give me that head nod back and there's something there. And so it's, uh, I think celebrations are critical for cultural bonding and uh, I don't think we use them well enough to actually bring people together, especially considering how lonely people are these days. That's great. Tell me about the uh, the wedding crasher business and twerking with bride's parents. What? What? what oh what, my god! Did, there was so many, like I did this a few times. I totally forgot that I did this. The movie Wedding Crashers came out, and it, I thought it would be like a really great idea to do it. And I, in fact, was got so into it that I used to travel with a tuxedo in case there was like an opportunity to attend an event or go to some crazy party. And on a few occasions, I put on a tux, went to Cannes Film Festival, and then just like walked into parties as if I had just come from the award show. Because why else would somebody be in a tux? Like they just so, wouldn't stop you. Okay, so you so you crash the wedding, but, yeah. but not only crashing the wedding, you're like twerking with the, the bride's parents. Like how did yes, this happen? I'm like dancing with them. I'm like doing shots with people and having drinks. Like I'm, yeah, it's, I have this photo of me with grandma at the wedding and she's like, Oh, it's so good to meet you. Are you friends of like, you know, whatever it is, my granddaughter. And like, I have this selfie with her that I, I like, I'll never forget this, this, uh, this image. And then I met grandpa and like, they're exactly what you'd kind of expect, like very elderly sitting on the side and we're just chatting. It was so surreal because I, really didn't belong there, didn't know anybody. And I coincidentally, this was so weird. At the time I was uh, 
a before and after fitness model for late night video infomercial called RevAbs. It was when the like the P90X had come out. This was like the follow-up program from Beach Bodies. Yeah. And uh, so I was in training with it. Then I wasn't even drinking, I, I don't think, at this uh, wedding that I crashed. And the photographer and the singer on stage were coincidentally in the training program with me. So he started putting me uh, in photos and like trying to introduce me to the, this is completely coincidental to like the bridesmaids. And then uh, like, you know, she was on stage singing and winking at me and like, it was just completely surreal. It was something out of a movie. I couldn't have planned it at all. Uh, but it was, this is amazing. So much fun. In, uh, in 2014, New York city said you were, uh, you were the most successful bachelor. What did that feel like? Clearly they didn't have access to my bank account. (laughs) (laughs) There's this funny impression that when you're at the center of a community, uh, with impressive people that you must be wildly, wildly wealthy or something. I remember one of my friends getting a phone call saying, Hey, can you introduce me to that billionaire friend of yours? And I was, and she told this to me and both of us just started cracking up. She was staying at my house. She was a house guest at the time. And because both of us were like barely making ends meet to cover the dinners slash all of my expenses. And it's just so funny, the difference between impression and reality. Uh, What do people often get wrong about the kind of work that you do? I think that people don't understand that, that I kind of live by behavioral science research. And the research really shows that after a certain amount of income, and I make a fine income, I'm just not a billionaire or anything like that, more money doesn't make the difference. What does is human connection and belonging and bringing people together. And so I spend a disproportionate amount of my time intentionally not monetizing things. Mm. And that's because if it was about monetization, the joy. The moment you monetize it, you shift it so that you could sell the product. I get it. All right. So we're going to do a speed round now as we wrap up. Just give me, uh, you can answer as quickly as you like. First thing that pops into your mind, what would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Oh, introducing people. Super easy. Like I, you say three things and then immediately my mind goes to the list of people that you should be best friends with. And I'm pretty solid at like, you know how you said like the blink stuff? That's like where my blink stuff comes in. It's not knowing what you do professionally. It's like, this is who you should be friends with. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Oh, I used to collect comic books as a kid. I've like, I think over a thousand comic books in the house. Whoa. Um, yeah. I mean, like I have a pretty decent collection, early X-Men, Avengers, that kind of stuff. I inherited some of it from my brothers, but I kept it going. What did people never ask you, but you wish they did? If you were to say, John, given these, these are my resources, how can I create the biggest impact for other people? That is really good. What's your guilty pleasure? Cheesecake. <laughs> yeah. like, if I could eat cheesecake all the time, I definitely, uh, and not gain weight, that would be like, oh my God, that would be the best. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, but it could be on anything that you mm-hmm. want, anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? Uh, how games uh, will save the world. Like, I, I think that we, and, and you actually are a perfect example of this, people work really hard. I think that we need to actually play with the ease. 
So play is this give and take that occurs that doesn't have a purpose. And it has this intrinsic joy that you can get lost in it. And I play like I'll maybe, you know, go work out. I, but I throw myself into it so hard that like I'm wrecked after, right? But it's like a bit of a playtime for me. You play some basketball or something like that, right? But I, I think that we need to rediscover play. Uh, I think that we, especially with all the burnout going on. Love that. You preach it to the choir here. Last, uh, last question. What one question would you like to ask me? We'll change it up a little bit. You've planned this incredible experience for all of your guests. And everything seems that it's something that's being done to them, right? And they're being served prosciutto and cheeses and it's tastings and dinners. What is it that we could look at that would have them do for one another so that they feel invested in the relationships? Human beings bond over this IKEA effect, right? This investment of effort. If we want to ease their bonding and make it go faster, then we need to give them a problem that's big enough that no one person can solve it on them their own. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I, I sadly don't have a great answer for you, but I, but I can tell you that I am starting to think about that. And what I am doing for the first time ever is Massimo Batura has a, a charity, but it's not just a give me money charity. It's a different kind of charity. What he does is in Milan, he created a restaurant for homeless people. <laughs> and it is done not as upscale as Francesca, uh, Osteria Francescana, you know, his, his uh, Michelin's highest rated Michelin star restaurant in the world, but it's, it's pretty nice. Mm -hmm. And he decided that he wanted to create a dignified environment for the people that were homeless to be able to connect and share a meal with each other and not feel like they're in a soup kitchen and do yeah. it in a way that they're proud. So we are arriving one day early before the event starts and we're all going before we begin all the fancy Ferraris to go into that and as a group be a part of serving and be a part of that experience. Um, I love it. I think that's fantastic. I think it's, this, a, it's this, a start. It's a start. Yeah. I think that this is a, a perfect example that I get invited on these kind of crazy trips by very impressive people. And it's generous and loving and done with such care. And what I see is that people bond because of the wrapping around the experience and because, you know, naturally people are inquisitive. They talk to each other. They, they do their thing. But something as simple as playing on teams a game, so it's this group versus that group, causes that IKEA effect to, to kick in and potentially higher levels of vulnerability because you have to work together as a team. And in those moments, the bonding accelerates dramatically. And I love that you're, you're doing this. I think it's fantastic. Thanks, man. We did, uh, uh, there's one more we did. It's, it's a light version, but it, but it made me think of it. When we were in, uh, in Mexico, we did a sandcastle contest. We jumped out yes. of a boat and we, we went this, you go on that side of the beach, you go on that side of the that beach. Is so you, good. You yeah, make the sandcastles. 
And then we had somebody, an independent person vote who had the best sandcastle. And then we, you know, we shit talked each other while we did it. But yeah, it, was, it, was, uh, it, but, but it really doesn't matter who wins or, or not. It allows for like creative expression and it allows yeah. for shared bonding experience where the stakes aren't critical. It's play. Right. And I think that that's fantastic. The more of that kind of stuff that you do and maybe even switch people up in the, which teams they're at so they can meet different people. I think that's fantastic. Great. John, you are, uh, you're, you're one of those people that you, you wear your heart on your sleeve and your, your intention of what you're putting out into this world is palpable. And uh, I know we just met each other, but if I might say, I am really proud of you and I'm really proud of the work that you're Thank doing you. because I think, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing that you're putting out into the world and it is having uh, a ripple effect. And like my, uh, my spirit guides are telling me right now that, uh, that you are doing exactly what your purpose is. So keep fucking doing it. Uh, that's uh, this is that's really really wonderful to hear, and thank you very much. And uh, I also want to thank you. This has been a super fun interview. I I do a lot of podcasts, and and this was not that. Like this was not the standard turnkey thing. This was super interesting and engaging, and I, I really appreciate. Uh, Thanks, video. brother. Thanks, brother. We'll link everything up in the show notes so they can uh, reach out uh, and connect and uh, get your book and all that stuff. That sounds great. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, Excuses are over. It's time to live.